0: Welcome to the Knowledge Chamber. I'm your host, Robert Hess. We just finished with a very successful PDC, and one of the key topics we talked about was, of course, the Windows Phone. Now, the Windows Phone is a great device for running your applications and stuff like that. Um, It's also important to have programs written for it. Silverlight has been the common technology we've been talking about for writing applications for the phone, but there's another technology, too, I think is important not to miss, and that's XNA. To help us understand XNA and how it applies to writing great phone applications, we have Sean Hargreaves. Sean, welcome. Hello. Thank now, you. You did, a, you did a session at PDC, right? That's right, yes. And what, what exactly did
1: it cover? It was titled, Things You Need to Know Before Building XNA Games for Windows Phone. So I was talking about some of the pitfalls, some of the things that will get you through a more smooth development process if you know them and take them into account when you're planning a game.
0: OK, and, and since PDC had all the sessions online, we'll all take and put a link over the description that points to your session. So if you actually go back and watch your session, and fill in the blanks, because we're, we're going to be able to cover everything you did in your session here. But I'd like to take and try to identify uh, exactly what XNA is, why people need to use it, and you know, what you can do with it. So XNA is the second of the two choices for programming
1: platform on Windows Phone. But the most important, There's, right? Obviously the most important. <laughs> There's Silverlight, which is the, similar to the web programming model. That has a more designer-based kind of programming flow where you build build layouts in expression blend and script things using XAML and c XNA has been around for a few years now on Windows and Xbox 360, and we moved that technology across to Windows Phone as well. It's more of an immediate mode API than Silverlight, so instead of... what, What does that mean exactly? Immediate mode means that, whereas in Silverlight, Silverlight knows the structure of your scene, so you add things like buttons that have behaviors, and then you hook up events for when this button is clicked, do this. XNA doesn't really have a concept of a button or a form or a page like Silverlight does. It just calls you and says, hey, it's time to draw some stuff. And it provides APIs like draw a sprite, draw a triangle, so I suppose
0: it's, so it's, it's kind, kind of, of like a... With it's kind mu- of lower level. Well, it's like with music, you know, either you're a DJ grabbing existing music and sticking it and playing it, or you're a musician where you're actually picking the, the instrument and playing the instrument uh, that's, immediately. That's
1: not a bad analogy.
0: Yeah.
1: You, yeah, it's, XNA tends to expect people to build more layers of stuff, so we always say it's not a game engine, it's a game framework
0: and people can build game engines on top of it, or some people can build games directly on top of it. So if you've never been a programmer before and you want to write a game and you say, oh, just use XNA to write that game with, it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve. To pick it, it depends up. on the complexity of the game. The main advice we give people there is start with
1: something simple. You, know, you often get people who've played a lot of games, they love them, they want to make one, so they start out by saying, I'd like to make World of Warcraft. That's <laughs> maybe not the best place to begin. Start with Pong, work up from there to Space Invaders, then a, you know, a few years down the road, tackle World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, are you, are you seeing a lot of game developers focusing writing applications for the Windows Phone?
1: Definitely. Yeah, We have a lot of games on Marketplace now already and a lot more in the pipeline, both from small indie creators and also big
0: commercial studios. And I suppose since we've been doing this on, on the Xbox for a while already, a lot of people are writing their XNA-style games for the Xbox. They're just simply taking some of that code base exactly. and putting it on the phone. What exactly do they need to be concerned about if you're taking an existing Xbox 360 game and moving it to the phone? It really depends on the game. Obviously, the phone isn't as powerful. So if you've made a high-end Xbox 360 game
1: that uses all the graphics capabilities of the machine, that's just going to have to be scaled down. You can't draw as much stuff with such fancy lighting. Mm -hmm. The screen is a slightly smaller size. The, probably the biggest difference for simple games is the input. On Xbox you have a gamepad, on the phone it's touch-based, so that's not going to go straight across without some changes to the input code. But outside of those things that are just platform differences where, hey, you know, it's touch, it's not a gamepad, the rest of the APIs in XNA are really the same, so
0: it's pretty easy to move stuff back and forth. Now, when you're thinking about writing a game for the phone, the phone is a, uh, it's a smaller memory machine. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's a lower level processor, um, to a certain extent it's, it's almost like going back to the old Apple II days um, in writing applications. Um, does that level of thinking about the application, the structure of the application, the amount of memory it's using, and the amount of you know display space that you're using come into play really hard?
1: It kind of does for games on any platform actually. And the phone's a little bit higher than an Apple II, it's, you know, it's a full 3D capability, you can do fairly fancy lighting and animation characters and all that kind of stuff in 3D. But it's obviously not as big as an Xbox in terms of memory usage. The interesting thing about games compared to a lot of apps is that they tend to fill whatever resources they have, <laughs> whereas you know, many apps, if you're, if you're writing a web page, you have your design, you implement it, you're done, great. If you only use two, 200, you know, a small amount of memory in doing so, that's fine. With a game, it's kind of different because it's an entertainment product, so you want to give the best entertainment you can. So there's a kind of way a lot of game developers think about things, that they have this budget and they might as well use it, and they don't get bonus
0: points for leaving memory free or not using processing cycles. It's like going to one of those supermarket giveaways and giving $1,000 of, of food and exactly. only spending 500 Well, I've got $500 Exactly. Left, so why you would, why walk, would you, walk away. Walk away yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah, yeah.
1: So that kind of leads to fairly circular discussion sometimes where we'll go to game developers and say, how much memory do you need to make a great game? And they'll say, well, how much have you got? I'll use every <laughs> bit of it. If you double it, they'll put twice as much stuff in the game and it'll look twice as good. So one of the things I was talking about at PDC is given the fixed budget, which on Windows Phone is ninety megabytes for applications or games.
0: Which how, is a lot more than the Which Apple is two. a
1: lot more than an <laughs> Apple II. Ninety megabytes is yeah. quite a lot of yeah. information. How do you use that effectively? Which means things like compression, things like lo- how do you think about loading efficiently? Because if you fill all 90 megabytes
0: with unique graphics, that's a lot of data to pull off a SIM card. Yeah. When your I mean, game I mean, I mean one would think about it, you know, the old firm. Floppy disks were like a megabyte in size, oh, so you're, megabyte. Ta- you're talking about 90 of those uh-huh. disks inside of a phone. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Okay. so the transfer speed on the phone is a little bit faster than off a floppy disk, yeah.
1: but it's still enough that if the first thing your game does when it boots up is load 90 megabytes of data, that's going to be an awfully long time where the user is just sitting staring at a screen that says, please wait, I'm on to megabyte 50, 60, 70. <laughs> so there's a kind of trade-off there of how do you, you want to get the user in the game quickly without waiting around, but you also want to use all of that space for rich graphics. So that's one of the things I was talking about, is how do you balance the two goals?
0: Yeah, it's the same sort of thing that people have been doing on the Xbox and Windows for a while for like, like games like like Halo, where you've got this wide open world and you're walking across it. Periodically, you know the game has to be loading in the next scene, but you don't really don't see that happening exactly. at all. Where so it used to be, you'd actually hit these spots in the games where you'd walk through a door or whatever, and it'd kind of freeze for a second, mm-hmm. and, then you'd, and then it'd, okay, yeah. next space. So there are levels of how far you want to go with that. The extreme is like that you see in a game
1: like Halo, where it's very fluid, you just move around, and things get loaded in the background on worker threads. That's a beautiful experience for the user, but pretty hard to do. There's a lot of just synchronization involved in writing your code so that it can predict I'm going to need this thing Mm -hmm. in a few seconds, so I should start loading it now. And there are very simple design things you can do to give a better loading experience even without doing that level of asynchronous streaming. Really silly things, like I've seen some games that the very first thing they do when they start up is they put up a logo saying, developed by my company name, and then they sit there for three seconds while the user looks at that logo, and then they go and start loading stuff. Oh, that's pretty. It's yes. obvious yeah. when you're writing code, first you do your logo, then you load your stuff. Yeah. But if you just interleave those two, put the logo up, put it on the screen, and then spend that three seconds frantically loading content, the user doesn't need to see that as a loading screen. That's your pretty logo. That's right. They but might hey, enjoy looking at logo They might enjoy looking at it. Yeah. But at the very least, that's, that gives you three seconds less of actual loading. You can go another step beyond that. Many games on the phone, the first thing they'll do when they start up is bring up a menu that says, do you want to start a new game or continue a previous game? So you could actually do some speculative loading when that screen comes up. If you assume probably the thing they're going to do is continue the previous game more often than not, as soon as you bring that menu up, just go start loading the level content for where they previously got to, so that most of the time, by the time they've looked at the menu, got their finger down over the button, pressed, OK, I want to continue, you're probably halfway through loading it already. And if they choose new game... And if they choose new game, then just, ah, loaded the wrong thing, throw it away. No harm done. But there are some pretty, kind of, pretty simple things you can do to make that experience much more fluid.
0: And from a development standpoint, I mean, we're talking about doing multi threaded applications. Um, I know that one of the p- things people talk about is the fact that the Windows Phone 7 doesn't allow background processing while other mm-hmm. applications are running. How does that fold into how you write your application? Depending on the game, it can either be very simple or
1: quite tricky. So the Windows Phone model is that when the user switches away from your app or game, it's expected to stop. We don't want things chewing up cycles in the background. And depending on what it is they go to do, we may or may not actually kill the process. So for some very simple things, we'll just stop calling your update and draw code so that it's idle, but the process is still in memory. And in that case, if they switch back to your game again, that can be a very simple switch. If the phone runs out of memory while well, they're doing something else, because your people on phones, they jump back and forth between things. It's not like an Xbox where you sit down and play Halo for four or five hours straight. <laughs> You play a bit of a game, you get a phone call, you go check something on Facebook, you look up some movie times, then you go back to the game. Then because it's a phone, it's got no hard drive, it's got no virtual memory, we can't just swap out processes and swap out data to make room for these other tasks. So at some point something has to give, right? So when the user jumps around between these different applications, we'll actually kill off the game process, unload it from memory, reclaim all the resources it was using. And then when they go back to it, we'll launch a new process but send it a flag saying, you should pretend like you were the previous process, mm-hmm. so that the user experience should be, hey, they pressed back, the game came back, it was in the same state that it was previously. And somehow pays attention to that, and just keep, let you play on from there. Unless you play on. Yeah. So I mean, depending on the game, that could, for some games, if you, if you finish designing a game without thinking about that and then go, huh, I've got to retrofit that <laughs> functionality, that can be surprisingly tricky. If you design from it from the outset, it can actually be pretty easy. And one of the ways we've seen a lot of games do this that's probably the least painful, is rather than, th- than thinking, okay, I've lost focus, I'm switching away. Wow, I've got to really quickly save all my state about everything I'm doing. A lot of games don't actually bother to save at all there. What they'll do is instead they'll have a checkpoint system where at various points during gameplay, whenever you complete a stage, beat a boss, whatever, whatever it is for that game, they'll save the state just continually as they go. So when, when they're switched away, they can just throw away everything and then when they come back they just go back to the previous save point. So the so experience then is you actually have lost a little bit of progress, You maybe perhaps. lost a bit of progress, yeah. but that's often what you actually want because it's, it's not very useful in a game. If you've just fought your way through a big swarm of enemies and you've succeeded and, okay, it's clear, you go into combat again and there's a lot of rockets flying at you through, and you switch away <laughs> to take a phone call, then you come back and suddenly you're in the middle of this action and <laughs> you, you've forgotten what was going on, you don't, have con- you don't have your fingers on the controls and you're dead before you even re- have time to. Yeah. Time to react. Yeah. So, so it's actually more useful to kind of back people up to the last safe point. So it depends upon exactly what sort of game it is. It and totally what depends using. on the game. It should be. If it's a card game, you should probably put them back actually at the move that they were at. But if it's an action game, maybe useful to rewind them to just just before the start of mm-hmm. the current bit of action.
0: I mean, and the whole concept of, of tasks put to the background and then killed off by the the system is kind of something that's been in the phone all the time. Because the idea is, since you're not a big full screen with applications you can shift around on the screen, Mm -hmm. we've always kind of said, okay, you're running an application and the application that has been left behind. Maybe it's sitting there, but as soon as we need that space, we need to kill that application off yeah. because we need that mm-hmm. space. So we, ne- we never want a situation where we have to tell a
1: user, sorry, you can't go to Facebook, because that game you were playing ten minutes ago is still consuming a load of memory in the background.
0: Right. They right. want to go to Facebook, they go to Facebook. But yeah. they're using control. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, another issue I hear people talking about quite a bit, um, and I'm not sure what, you, what your thoughts are on it, is the whole Managed versus unmanaged. Now, XNA is a managed environment, correct? That's right. It's c sharp and What, what exactly does that mean to a developer out there who's not currently doing managed code coding? Um,
1: my guess is that you'd probably really like C-sharp if you haven't used it before. I was a C++ game developer for many years. I worked on console games for a bunch of different platforms which were originally in C and then C++. And really when I started working on, on XNA was when I first learned C-sharp and .net. I love it. It's very productive, very powerful programming language. I can write code faster in C-sharp than I can in C++ and I make less mistakes.
0: So from that level, at a programming language model, um, C-sharp is kind of an improvement over C, C++. I would say Um, so. In in my mind, C-sharp itself doesn't scream managed code. Um, hmm. But managed code itself kind of presents some different aspects to the user that they need to be thinking about when they're writing applications, because you know they're not able to get to some of the system level features and capabilities they might otherwise be expecting. How does that play out in a game? Um,
1: generally, you can get to all the stuff you'll need to on Windows Phone. So, particularly with XNA, we've exposed some pretty low level access to drawing 3D graphics, doing. The same kind of access to the graphics hardware that you would get through a C++ API like DirectX. Things like
0: memory pointers.
1: Things like memory pointers. There are some things that you don't have to think about maybe a slightly different way. Because
0: mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't be getting those memory pointers to begin with. No,
1: in, 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 whereas in C, you tend, in C programmers tend to boil everything down to pointers because it's really the only <laughs> data structure there is. And we pretend that we've got things like hash tables and lists, but it's yeah. all just pointers. Yeah. Yeah. In, in C the fundamental data structure is the array, which is bound yep. checked and type safe. So you tend to find yourself where in C you would pass pointers around. In .NET you pass arrays or innumerable interfaces. Yeah, Which is which is probably technically the better way of doing it. It, tend, it, it tends to catch it when you do things wrong a little better, I find. Mm-hmm. If you make a mistake in your algorithm, you get an exception instead of a, I scribbled on memory and now my program's going to crash and I have no idea why. Which is probably not the right thing you want to do for a phone because a phone needs to have that
0: instant-on mm-hmm. capability. There are
1: definitely some security issues there, which is one of the reasons we chose .NET as the programming platform. Partly we did that because we wanted to make a... A, a platform that was going to be easy for people to make great content on. But yeah, there's definitely some security issues there. That If an app misbehaves, we want to be able to say that app has now failed, and we'll we'll unload it from memory because it's crashed.
0: And every aspect of that is, is but the gone. Phone,
1: and exactly, and it's yeah. gone, and the phone remains a valid phone, and it still works as a phone. We don't want to get into that state where yeah, some stuff's been corrupted, and we're not really sure what, and now things start behaving unreliably, and maybe you have to reboot your phone to fix it. That's not what we want customers to be experiencing.
0: And then we're providing a managed layer that allows access to any of the the hardware features of the phone that they don't want to have access to exactly. rather than a rare, r- raw hardware mode that they can get into. Yeah, so we have managed APIs for accessing things like the accelerometer, the GPS data, mm-hmm. all of those sensors that you would need to use. Which I see you can know, prevent someone from getting too tied to the actual physical platform that the the phone has. So, like, let's say they've got a Toshiba phone they're using for development practices, and I've got a Samsung phone, if they're used to certain hardware things associated with the Toshiba, Maybe that doesn't exist on my Samsung. Yeah, that's obviously... So if they're going straight to the hardware, Mm -hmm. um, that app's not going to work on my phone.
1: Yeah, that's something we obviously have to design for, is to make sure that when we ship an API, it's going to be on all of the different phones from all of the different manufacturers, and it's going to work the same way. Mm -hmm. It's not good if you end up with this crazy matrix of this feature, this feature. Oh, this phone doesn't have this thing that I used over here. We want to be able to say, you know, you, you make your game, you test it, you're good to go.
0: Now, are phones coming out that maybe unique themselves with some added capabilities? The biggest optional feature is the
1: slide-out keyboard, which some of the phone devices have and some don't. So that is something that if you
0: use the keyboard, you need to be aware that it's not going to be there for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, the keyboard, though, is going to be the same thing as the on-screen keyboard. It just might be easier to access the slide-out instead. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Now, I you've got a demo you want to show us? Yeah, this is a demo that I made for my PDC talk. Okay. All you guys need to kind of go onto your side like that so you can actually see the screen properly, right? Is that working? No, so it's actually going to be the right way up once I launch
1: the game. Oh, okay. I'm just holding the phone in landscape orientation here. Okay. So this is running in the Windows Phone Emulator on my laptop. This is a game called Pet Chess, and the concept is that it's a chess game, but it uses my pets as the pieces, which I think is going to be huge because my pets are so cute. So is it like maybe battle chests, where the animal's going to fight amongst themselves? So we had a couple of different versions in the evolution of this. I'll show you how it works today. If I take some moves, it'll swap over to the other team. I can move the other piece. And now if I take the other cat, I'll drag him up there. We get a little explosion with some flowers and hearts. (laughs) My original plan was that this was going to be blood and gore and little bits of cat would go flying all over the screen. My wife Tracy said that maybe wasn't totally appropriate for (laughs) us. mainstream audience, so I toned it (laughs) down a bit and made it smiley flowers instead. Do you have a little boss key on the side you can kind of press? That's going to be the version 2 update, I think, the the blood and gore mode. But the the, the point of this demo is obviously not the game, it's kind of a stupid game idea. But I was showing some things to do with game content management, which in this game is the textures used by the different animals. So one of the the things that I demoed here was how I created the outlines around each piece. The black team pieces have a thin black outline and the other team has a white outline. And I wrote some code in the talk that generates those outlines programmatically as part of the build process.
0: So rather than actually creating the images one at a time and having two sets of images, mm-hmm. you've only got one image you're using and, and code then doing it. That's exactly right. So I think this build,
1: yes, I do. This is the mm-hmm. texture that the game's using. So you can see that has the images of the different pieces and also the outlines that were pre-created. But I didn't want to draw those outlines by hand because that would have been very laborious in Photoshop, tracing around each one, <laughs> each one of my pets. So instead I wrote some code to do that, and using a feature of XNA Game Studio, I hooked that code up to run inside Visual Studio when I build the content. So Often people would do that kind of work while they're loading. They'd pull in a texture, then analyze it and create the second texture to be the outline, which slows down loading because you're doing a lot of work. So I was talking about how do we not have to slow down loading and make loading be just take it from here, copy it into memory, done. Oh, I see, so you're doing that during the build process. Exactly. So I add add an image to Visual Studio, which is just the original picture of my cat. And then I wrote a customization for the build process that goes and generates a second piece of data. So the thing that it saves out that I ship with my game contains both the outline and the original texture. Mm -hmm. And that's a feature of XNA that we have a standard infrastructure called the content pipeline, which makes it very easy to write this sort of code that plugs into Visual Studio. So you can basically write, I guess you call them custom compilers for different types of content. Which are often very specific to individual games. Like this, you know, this particular game needs outlines around animals. That's kind of unique to doing a chess game with animals in it. Mm-hmm. But most games we look at have things like that that are very unique to them. That's, I have this piece of data that's what my artist created or my level designer created. But it's I wanted, not quite, it's ready not quite for what it. I want. I want the game. The game wants this other thing that's similar but generated from it in some way. Mm-hmm. So we did some work on making it very easy to put that code into Visual Studio, so you don't have to put that code into your game directly. Or if you need like you know huge transforms on it or something like exactly. that, you can do that as well. E- even just silly things like compressing textures. That's another thing I talked about: is how to use hardware-friendly compressed formats. Which again, you don't want to be compressing while you're loading. That would be silly. You put that back in Visual Studio and do it as a pre-process. Mm-hmm.
0: And you're also showing off some of the 3 d ishness because you've know, the, got the, the board spinning mm-hmm. in the 2D, 3D space. Yeah, this is
1: actually a hybrid 2D, 3D game. So the pieces are just 2D sprites, and I'm just drawing them with the XNA sprite batch API, which is a simple 2D renderer. But the board is a 3D model, and I'm just doing some math on the pieces to scale them, so when they're at the back of the board, they appear a bit smaller, so you mm-hmm. get the perspective effect. If I move a piece, See, so that's just a 2D sprite that I'm just dragging around in yep. 2D. Yep. But then I'm projecting onto the board to figure out which, which square it's moved to, and then I can spin the board in 3D.
0: Now, like you said, all game authors are going to take and use up all available space. Did you use up all available space um, for this game? Not in this game. This game was about,
1: I think, one and a half megabytes. With the, com- with the textures compressed. Mm-hmm. and It's almost all textures. That's one of the things that often surprises people who are new to game development is how much of a game is to content, particularly textures, and not code. We're used to thinking of code as being the, the important thing because that's what we spend a lot of time writing. But in this game, I think the code was maybe 100 kilobytes, and then I have a megabyte and a half of textures.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Could you have done this in Silverlight? Yes, you could.
1: It is, the board would have been tricky because that has a 3D projection on it. I think you could have faked that into working in Silverlight, but it would have required some not-so-obvious math. The pieces you could have done very easily mm-hmm. in Silverlight. Mm-hmm. And did you give the, the source code this out to the people that attend your session? I haven't
0: yet. I, I'd like to figure out how to get it released. I'll probably end up putting it on my blog. Okay, okay. I know that uh, with the, the sessions where they're released on MicrosoftPDC.com, uh, we can actually have like zip files if you want, yes. so you can give Michael the, the zip file and just he adds it to it and oh, people can download fantastic. it automatically. I should do that. You yeah, should. <laughs> Good tip, thanks. <laughs> so what's what's your next game going to be? Same as this, but with blood and gore. <laughs> battle chess with battle cats chess. and dogs.
1: Maybe some animations. Maybe I should even finish the logic. I did just enough of this to move, but you can't take pieces properly yet, and there's no winning. So oh, the game doesn't okay. really work very well. Yeah, so it's just a it
0: doesn't know that kings are special, and it probably should to be a chess game. Probably, yeah, yeah. Maybe next time it'll be uh, cats on one side and dogs on the other to have that true battle chess sort of, mm-hmm. sort of feeling going on. To it. I'm, I'm
1: thinking there's a lot of board games that can have pets applied to them. There's yep. checkers, noughts and crosses. There's yeah.
0: No end of possibilities here. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons? Possibly. There you go. Well, uh, thanks, Sean. I appreciate understanding more about XNA and uh, learning more about the session you gave at the PDC. Um, if you want to see Sean's session, I'll make sure I put a link in the description of this show so you can go directly to his session and watch XNA and how to write games for it, um, or whatever the t- You had a big, long title. I'm not going to repeat that. Building time. games. Things you need to know before building games for Windows Phone 7. That's a mouthful. That was a mouthful. And uh, so the next game you write should be an X and A rather than Silverlight. Thanks for joining us.